The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. If you, have a, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we are going through a series called More Than a Label. What does it mean that we have salvation? It's not just that we call ourselves a Christian, but what are all these implications of what salvation means in our lives? And today we're going to be primarily based in Romans 3, although we'll be certainly bringing in other texts as well. Hey, I love to read, and I get to read a lot throughout the day and during the week for my job as research and study for sermons and otherwise, but when I'm home at night before I go to bed, I try every night to to leave my phone in the kitchen, and then I go into the bed where I have my Kindle, and I love in bed to read fiction at the end of the day. Now, some days I get through one page and I go to sleep, right? We've all been there and had those days, right? But some days you get in and it's a page turner and you end up staying up way too late at night because you kind of get sucked in to the story. And some of my favorite genres of fiction to read are what you could call things like legal dramas, where there's this thing that happens and someone's on trial and you always know, right, there's gonna be twists, there's gonna be turns, there's gonna be new evidence, this person's gonna come. And I get so sucked in to those stories and, and figuring out are they innocent Are they guilty? Who did it? Who didn't do it? And want to get to the end to figure it all out. Well, the biblical doctrine that deals with our guilt as sinners, as people who have committed wrong, the biblical doctrine that deals with our guilt is called justification. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is justification, how in salvation, because of what Jesus has done for us, we move from someone who is guilty to someone who is now living in the grace of God. Justification explains how we can go from being guilty before God to now living and being fully forgiven and living in his grace. Now, the doctrine of justification is one of the hallmarks of what it means to be Protestant. Now, you may not know what a Protestant is, but if you are here and this is your church, then you are a Protestant. That is what you believe. We are Protestants and we're going to Bible church. And this idea of justification has existed throughout all of church history, certainly, but was really at the center and the heart of what we call the Reformation that happened a little over 500 years ago. See, at the time... Much of the religious teaching in churches was kind of summarized by one person I read that says this, kind of the normal teaching was God helps those who do their best. God helps those who try really hard. And it was Martin Luther who, upon reading often even the text that we're going to look at this morning, said, nope, that's not how it works. It's that we are justified by faith. It's It's not because of our own human efforts. And Martin Luther wrote this. He said, if this article, speaking of justification, if this stands, the church stands. If this collapses, the church collapses. So what is justification? Since that's kind of a big word and it's in the Bible and we use it, but what is justification? A simple, a simple definition is justification is to be counted or declared righteous by God. To be counted or declared righteous by God. And it's important as you start to look through the Bible, if you want to know more and dive even deeper into this, don't just do a search in your Bible app for the words justification or justify. Do that, but then also look up for righteous or righteousness. Because all of the times in Scripture where it's talking about making something righteous, crediting righteous, declaring something righteous, all comes back to that is within this idea of the doctrine of justification. One, uh, one definition that I also really like said this, 
the doctrine of justification concerns God's gracious judicial verdict in advance of the day of judgment, pronouncing guilty sinners who turn in trust to Jesus Christ, forgiven, acquitted of all charges, and declared morally upright in God's sight. And the passage that speaks in this, perhaps the clearest in all of scripture on what justification is, is Romans chapter three, starting at verse 21. Let me read for us. It says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." This morning, we're gonna look at four essentials to understanding justification. Four essentials to understanding what is justification and, and what difference does it make in my life. The first is this, is the shortcomings of our own works. The shortcomings of our works. See, what, why do we need to be justified to begin with? What, what's the problem to begin with? Well, Romans 1 through 3, leading up to the verses that we dive in, are establishing this idea that all of us are sinners. In Romans chapter 1, the focus is on the Gentile world and how they have lived and are sinners. And then in Romans 2, it shifts to the Jewish audience as Paul says, yeah, we're not much different. We have the law, but we can't keep the law. And we ourselves are sinners as well. And so he finally culminates it right before where we started in verse 21. In Romans 3.20, it says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, that's in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By this phrase, works of the law, which Paul regularly uses in Romans and Galatians, what he means by that is, is what is required of the law in order for righteousness to stand before God is complete, perfect, and total obedience. Complete obedience to everything that God would say. And Paul is a realist. He says, listen, I've tried really hard. I've tried probably harder than everyone else has tried, but maybe you've tried just as hard as me. We can't do that. He said, it doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how detailed you make your day. You cannot live completely up to God's law that has been revealed to us. We cannot have comprehensive obedience to him. And so thus, that's why through the law comes knowledge of sin because through God's righteous requirement of how we should live, we recognize None of us can do that on our own. None of us can get there. And so it's not by works of the law that we can be justified in God's sight. Now, there are some people who would say, well, I, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. Why do I really need justification? We sometimes so underestimate how infiltrated into our lives sin actually is. So think of sin in a few different categories. First, you can think of sin as sinful actions that you commit. Right, things that you say, things that you do towards others, attitudes that you have towards one another. For most of us, we don't have to think past a couple hours ago to find a sinful action in our life. If you do, just ask your spouse, they'll point one out to you, right? Or your kids, they'll also point out your sins to you, right? Like, if we think that we've gone this far in this day without sinful actions, we probably just haven't talked to anyone to recognize our sin, right? And that we all are committed and do sinful actions. 
But you can go to even a layer deeper. What about our sinful thoughts? What about the things that we, that we don't say, but when that colleague emails us at 4.50 on a Friday asking us for, to do something, you know that thought that comes into your head. You don't say it, but you know the thought, right? Or the thing when your spouse does that, or your kids do that, or your neighbor does that. Like, what, what comes into your head? Sinful thoughts run deep within us. But even deeper than that are our motives. See, because we all recognize there have been many times in our lives where we have done the right thing before the wrong reason. Right? We've done the proper behavior before the wrong or even a sinful motive. And sin goes down even to our motives. See, our works contribute nothing to us being declared righteous by God. To help illustrate this, Paul goes in Romans chapter four to the example of Abraham. And he says this in, in Romans chapter four, verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed or had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as Righteousness. So he said, even if you look back through the Old Testament, this is how people have always been declared righteous by God. It's through faith in God, not through actions, not in their obedience, not in following the law, not in their works. It's always been about faith in God. He goes on in Romans chapter four to talk about this, the Jewish sign of circumcision that came in, that was their covenant sign with God that set them apart. And he said, hey, wh when, was, when was Abraham declared righteous by God? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was, it was before. And it was before that so even that you couldn't say, no, this is the sign of righteousness, that when you have this sign, then you are declared righteous by God. He says, no, even before that. See, the Bible is clear that you cannot justify, you cannot save yourself from your sin. Doesn't matter how hard you try. Doesn't matter how long you try. You simply can't do it. Galatians 2.16 puts it succinctly, by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. One of the other reformers, pro probably the third most influential of the reformers after um, Martin Luther and Calvin, Philip Melanchthon is his name, and he's a theologian at the time, and he says this, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. <laughs> That's what you have. That's what you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary to begin with. Our works fall short. We are in a helpless state. We cannot do it ourselves. Which leads us to the second essential of understanding justification. That is the foundation of faith. The foundation of faith. How does one receive what God has done for us? How is one justified? It is by faith alone. By faith alone, the reformers called out in Latin, sola fide, by faith alone is one justified. And we've seen this, this word and this role of faith and belief already in play there in Romans as we read. In Romans 3, verse 22, it says, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In verse 25, it's the propitiation by his blood to be received by what? By faith. In verse 26, that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, in Romans 3, verse 28, for we hold 
that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16 puts it this way. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now it's important as we dive into this idea of faith alone being what justifies us. Faith itself isn't a virtue that saves you, right? It's what you have faith in. So it's not just believe in something sincerely, have faith and then justification, you'll be saved. No, but it's, it's having faith that it's in the faith in what Jesus has done for us that we are united to him and receive all of the benefits of what life in Jesus now is. And the question for us is do we believe that we're saved by faith alone or by faith plus our works? Do we believe we're saved by faith alone or by faith and our works contribute to it? See, this can subtly sneak into our understanding of salvation and our understanding of what it means to follow after God. And this is the, the background of many who are a part of our church. One of the things that I love about our church is we truly are non-denominational. And if you are newer here, whatever faith background you have, there are others at this church with a very similar faith background. And many people at our church come from a faith background that essentially teaches that the more you do, the more works you have in your life, your justification increases and grows. The justification is not something that's true about you and that God says is over you no matter what. It's not by faith alone, but it's through works as well. And how, this, this can be a little tricky in language sometimes because things will be said like, well, justification is the starting point and then your justification will progressively grow more and more as you live in obedience. And the more you do, the more you are justified by God. And you do more good deeds, you give more to a church, you go on another mission trip, the more you're justified. But guess what? If that's true, the converse is true as well. That the more you don't do, the less justified you are. And you're like on the sliding scale of where am I before God? And the dependency isn't on what Jesus has done, but dependency is on where am I in the works that I have done? And this, this is still taught and seen in many faith communities to this day. See, justification is a once and for all declaration by God, not something that our works changed. We are saved by faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. Now, some might say, well, that's great. So now I'm gonna believe and do whatever I want, right? They, they, they flip it, they go to the opposite way. Well, great, so, so if I am saved by faith alone, then I can just believe in God and now, and now he is bound to forgive me for whatever I do. So I can have faith in Jesus, what he's done for me, and I can go on and live my life however I want. Well, that's a misunderstanding of what faith really is. See, the test of genuine faith is seen in evidence through your life. It's not just in what you say you believe, but it's in how you live, if your faith is actually a genuine faith or not. Luther anticipated people pushing back on this when he was talking about faith alone, and he says this, it is true that faith alone justifies without works, but I'm speaking about genuine faith, which after it has justified will not go to sleep but is active through love. I love that faith that won't go to sleep, but is active through love. See, one who claims genuine faith, but has no evidence of it, doesn't actually have genuine faith. 
As James puts later on in the Bible, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And yes, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith never stays by itself. It always leads to something else. Faith is always evidenced by action. And sometimes I think how we've gotten around this in our world is we've compartmentalized our lives to say like, well, I'll give intellectual assent to Jesus, but the rest of my life, I wanna do whatever I want. And that's not what the biblical concept of faith actually is. When, when the Bible says to have faith in Jesus, it's not saying just to intellectually believe in something, but it transforms your entire life and your heart as well. So later in, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 10, two times Paul says that if someone believes in their heart, believes in their heart, and we have that expression still to this day, you have to believe it in your heart. Well, for them, the heart was the seat of motive, of action, of desire, of will, of longing for them. And to believe something in your heart meant that if you believe it, it's gonna change everything about your life. Thus, when you believe in your heart, it's not like, okay, I give, I give cognitive assent to Jesus and now I can go do what I want. But no, when I understand who Jesus is and what he's done for me, it will change my entire life. And so no, we can't just say, well, we're saved by faith alone so I can do whatever I want. But we are justified not by our works, but by faith in what God has done for us. The third essential in understanding justification is the declaration of innocence. The declaration of innocence that is now true for us who have faith. You may have noticed, even in the opening example that I used, when, when uh, theologians talk about justification, they, they highlight that it is a forensic or a legal term. It doesn't mean that, that you are actually now fully righteous when God declares you righteous. No, you, you get that. You know yourself. You're still a sinner, but that he has declared you as being righteous. And you can put yourself, when you think of justification, as if you are in a courtroom and God is the judge and the jury. And for me, I find this, this helpful, even in understanding the permanence of what it means that God declares you innocent because of what he's done. Now, I am not a lawyer, so do not come to me for any legal advice, but I do have the internet, so I can Google things. And in the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, it says this. It says, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. And what the idea is, the U.S. Constitution guarantees as citizens that if you've been put on trial for something and the judge declares you free and innocent, you don't have to live the rest of your life looking over your shoulder, wondering if you're gonna be put on trial for the same thing again. When the judge or the jury have declared something to be true, it's true. It's always true. It doesn't change. And there's people who we know, celebrities, who are like, yeah, they got away and they probably should be in prison, right? But it was declared once and so now it's true whether you think it's true or not. I find that so helpful for understanding what it means that God declares us to be innocent. See, in his courtroom, he has judged us innocent because of what Jesus has done. It's been declared once and for all, and Christians don't need to live life looking over their shoulder, wondering if God's gonna put them back on trial for their sin after he's already made his declaration, that you have been justified, you've been declared innocent. The gavel has been dropped, the verdict has been rendered for us. See, because this, this has been pronounced over us, Romans 8, says this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? because it is God who justifies. Who can now bring up another accusation? Who can put you on trial again? Because it was God who, who justifies you to begin with. 
The accusations that Satan would make towards you have nothing to stand on in the life of the believer. The accusations that your own heart and flesh would make against you have nothing to stand on in the life of the believer because God has declared you innocent. See, because of this, the Christian can have great assurance in their salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus, because you are justified by faith in what Jesus has done for you, you can have great assurance that you are a child of God. See, if your salvation, if your justification depended on your work, you would have no assurance of salvation. Because if salvation is gained by works, then it's only maintained as long as we continue to do those works. That's why this idea of assurance of salvation is a uniquely Christian doctrine that is not seen in the other religions of the world. If you look to some of the Eastern religions of the world, think of Buddhism and Hinduism, there's no assurance of what will happen after death for them. They can never say, no, I know what will happen. Why? Because I know what will happen as long as I continue to good, do good deeds, they would say. There's no assurance as to this is what is going to take place. It's why well, I have to continue to try, I have to continue to do enough, and then maybe this will happen. That's so why even in monotheistic religions, such as Islam, if you've ever talked to a Muslim friend or neighbor, there's no assurance of salvation for them. Because it's, have I done enough to please God? Have I done enough to please God? And you won't know if you've done enough to please God until you're dead. And until that day, you can never have an assurance of have I done, are my works complete? Have I done enough for God to forgive me? See, Christianity is uniquely different because we have assurance of salvation because our salvation is not based on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. But so many times, we as Christians lack assurance of salvation. And if, you, if that's been true or is true of you, we have all been there with you. We, we have all had times in our lives where we have wrestled with and struggled with, and does God, is salvation real? Is, is this real in my life? Now, now, why do we sometimes struggle for assurance? I think it's because so often we look to two different things for assurance of salvation, which we shouldn't. One of the ways, the places that we often look for assurance of salvation is we look to our own feelings for assurance of salvation, right? We look inwards and if we feel God, then we are like, okay, no, I, I know I'm assured of God's presence and I know I'm saved. And yes, faith and feelings should go hand in hand often, right? That Christianity should encounter all of our emotions and following God. But here's the thing, if you've walked with God for any length of time, certainly months or years, certainly, you know there are times in following God where he just seems so close, where you open the Bible, where you come to church, where you start to sing and worship, and the presence of God is so close and so real and so profound. And you're like, yes, I know I'm saved. And there are other seasons of life where God seems so far away. And if you've walked with God for any sense of time, you know that's true. And what happens to us sometimes is when we don't sense God like how we once did, then we can start to say, well, does that mean I'm not actually saved? Did I actually do something wrong? Does that mean my salvation is gone if my feelings don't line up the same as they once did? Your salvation does not depend on how saved you feel. It depends on what Jesus did for you. It doesn't matter how if you feel it or not, as long as Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead and you believe in that, you are saved. Whether you sense the closeness of God or whether you're in a season where he seems distant, you can be assured of your salvation even when you don't feel 
close to God. Another way that we look to for assurance in salvation is we look to our performance. We look to our works, right? We, we get maybe, okay, I'm not, I'm not saved by works, but as long as I'm doing enough good stuff, then I'm like, okay, no, I'm good. God and I are good, because look at my life. Look at my life, things are good. But if you've, again, journeyed with God for a long time, you know, what is the Christian life like? It's two steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes one step forward, four steps back. Right, like you, you're moving in one general direction, but it's not just up and to the right. There is roller coasters, there's ups and there's downs. And when our, when our assurance becomes and how good our behavior is, what happens when we take steps back? What happens when we're trying so hard to conquer certain sins in our lives and yet it comes out? Does that mean suddenly that, that we can, I'm like, oh no, am I even saved if, if I did that again, if I fell back into that? Does that mean my salvation's not real? Well. No, because your salvation never depended on your works to begin with. It depended on the work of Jesus on the cross for you. And so it's never a sign for Christians of, of arrogance, never a sign of pride. But as a follower of Jesus, you can have a profound assurance in your salvation because it rests on what Jesus has done for you, not on what you have to do for him. The fourth essential to understanding justification Lastly, is the crediting of righteousness. The crediting of Jesus's righteousness to you and to me. That in, in Jesus, God's righteousness is counted, or in some translations we saw there in, in Romans 4, that, that Abraham was counted as righteous. I think it's the old King James that said, is reckoned as righteous, right? That an outside righteousness, not of our own, is given to us. Some would call this the imputation of righteousness from someone else, from Jesus onto your life. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the amazing thing about justification. Not only is our sin given to Jesus, his righteousness is now credited to our account that when you believe in Jesus, that he justifies you so that when God looks down on you, he does not see your sin, but he sees the righteousness of his son in your place. He does not see your sin any longer, but he sees his son's righteousness, that perfect, complete obedience that Jesus said, the righteousness displayed on the cross, risen from the dead, that's what he sees true when he looks at you. And Jesus' righteousness will always more than cover your sin. You don't have to worry about out-sinning the righteousness of Jesus given to you. Now, if you've, uh, you've probably had times in your life, maybe this is even true now for some of you, but most of us have had times in our lives where, where the, the money in the bank account was very, very tight compared to the amount of bills we had to pay. And you remember the tension that, that that is in living that way. You have to like time certain bills. Like, okay, no, that one can't go out till next week because we get paid on Friday. And you have to really be tight and to be careful on all of it because you don't want to withdraw from something you don't have. But right? you don't want to overdraw your account. You will never overdraw the righteousness of Jesus into your life. It's not a limited resource that you will one day exhaust. His righteousness is full and perfect and complete for you. Because it's God's righteousness, because it's Jesus' righteousness given to us, 
not our own, but his righteousness credited to our account. When we truly understand that humility will become a marker of our Christian life. When we truly understand that salvation is God doing everything for me, humility is the byproduct of our lives. This is exactly where Paul goes in Romans chapter three, the very next verse after talking about justification in verse 27, he says this, then what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. What becomes of your pride? Well, it, it vanishes at the foot of the cross. It vanishes at Jesus's feet. You have no right for boasting when you start to look at what Jesus has done. It's something that you don't deserve that's credited to you that you didn't earn. Have you ever had, uh, had this happen to you where something gave you credit for something that you really didn't have anything to do with before? This happened to me recently. And when, when someone gives you credit for something you have very little to do with, the last thing you should do is to take pride in it, right? You're like, no, that, that really has very little to do with me, but thank you. This happened to me about a month or so ago. I'm, I'm in a cohort of other pastors and we have a coach who helps kind of coach us. And we travel a couple times a year to other churches to meet with their senior pastor and to learn from their leadership teams, just about ministry, about preaching, about life, about leadership. And I was at a church about a month ago that is one of about, I think it's the 10th or 15th biggest church in the US, right? They measure their Sunday attendance by the tens of thousands of people. Right, So this is a very large church. The senior pastor, one of the most gracious people, we were in his house for like 12 hours that day. And it was near, near the end of the day as we're out there, right? So he leads a significant level ministry, right? Huge, huge numbers, his impact that he has. And we're in the circle there. There's the group of us. And the coach of our group is a retired pastor who lives in the area whose, whose granddaughter actually comes to our youth group. And so we're there, I'm sitting right next to this guy who has like tens of thousands of people coming to church. And what does this other guy start to do? He starts to tell him how great our student ministries is at Morgan Hill Bible Church, right? I'm like, this guy has tens of thousands of people coming. Why are you talking about me? And then he starts to go, he doesn't compliment. It's not, oh, hey, Michael's such a great preacher, but the youth group at Michael's church. And he keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And now in that moment, do I have any right in taking pride in our youth group? No, because I don't go to youth group ever. I've gone like four times, maybe, all right, maybe like eight times in the last three years, right? Our youth group is what it is because of our youth pastors, because of Anthony and Dustin and Nicole, and because of our youth leaders, and because of our kids who live out the love of Jesus and invite their friends. It has very little to do with me. And there's no right for me in that moment to be like, yep, yeah, we're pretty awesome. And it's all because of what I, no, I just have to sit there in humility and be like, yeah, that's, it's incredible what God's doing. And it's got very little to do with me. See, your salvation doesn't just have very little to do with your works. It's got nothing to do with you. It's all what Jesus has done. And when we recognize that pride should just leak away from us and humility come into our lives, we understand that God looked at you in your shortcomings, in your sin, says they can't earn it, they don't deserve it but I'm gonna send my son to make them righteous and I'm gonna give and credit to their account the righteousness of God for them. It should move our hearts to humility. It should move our hearts to respond in worship for how amazing the salvation is that we have received. And God, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, it is profound that you would look at us and see the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. 
God, and if there's anyone here this morning who has never placed their faith but has been trying to earn it, would today be the day they lay that down and simply say, Jesus, I believe. I believe it's not because of what I've done. I believe it's not because of what I could do. But I, by faith, trust in what Jesus has done for me. God, would what you've done for us never cease to move us to humility, never cease to move us to worship and thanksgiving for what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.